Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypt Today, cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime. Dayton Williams. It's so great to see you, Jacob. It's good to see you as well. Tomato, tomato. To NATO or to NATO? Hold your applause, Jacob. This week, we are diving into the ins and outs of international cooperation in cybersecurity. We talk to an expert from the Atlantic Council on cyber statecraft and NATO, and we untangle what internet governance is. In addition to that, we'll also be looking for a replacement host for Dayton after that terrible pun. Oh, come on. Tomato, 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 tomato? That's amazing. I spent all night I was up trying to come up with that pun, and you just denigrate it. The connectivity that the internet affords us allows us for unprecedented access to the rest of the world. People from anywhere on the planet can share their ideas and engage in commerce, irrespective of the kind finds of imposed political borders. For that reason, it makes sense that when a threat arises that challenges the functioning of these networks, countries work together across national boundaries to strengthen their security and encourage healthy practices. From the American perspective, the most relevant international organization dealing with cybersecurity is NATO. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is a security partnership between 29 nations in North America and Europe that work together to defend its members' interests and their democratic system of government. In the 21st century, NATO's mission has expanded far beyond the Cold War. The alliance has transformed to be the new breed of security challenges from both individual countries and non-state actors ranging from terrorism to cyber attacks. By sharing resources and expertise between member states, NATO is able to encourage the constructive process of information exchange, enable training to protect critical systems, and encourage collaborative research into potential threats. Earlier this year, NATO allies agreed to set up a new cyber ops center in Europe, designed to promote strategic planning in cyberspace. The center allows NATO to leverage members' national cyber capabilities to bolster its missions and operations. NATO also conducts annual exercises like the Cyber Coalition Exercise, which aims to integrate cyber defense elements and considerations into military operations. Further, grants and social programming managed by NATO add to a greater commitment to cyber education, training, exercises, and awareness. Consistently sharing information on cyber attacks and developing best practices for a variety of situations in cyberspace enhances NATO's capability in responding to crises. Establishing a system of governance not only helps to achieve security objectives for current problems, but also ensures well-drafted mitigation plans for future ones. A collaborative cybersecurity framework can help cover improvements in the system, aid in implementing technical controls, support the coordination of audits, and increase awareness on certain attitudes and behaviors. To put it simply, when the combined experience of all members of NATO are collected, studied, and implemented, it can create a comprehensive strategy to confront challenges in cyberspace. One example of this has been NATO's response to election tampering through social media in recent NATO members' elections. NATO is funding education efforts to fight disinformation techniques, as well as providing logistical support during nation's election seasons. Moving forward, the lessons learned from confronting these election meddling operations will yield a consistent and tested strategy to protect the citizens as they decide at the voting booth. One of the foremost documents on the international governance of cybersecurity is the Talon Manual. It's a non-binding, comprehensive analysis of how existing international laws apply in cyberspace. 
To get a better sense of it and what cooperation looks like under NATO, we now turn to our expert. This podcast, we are joined by Clara Jordan, the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Right on. So, uh, Jacob, we're here today to talk a little bit about cybersecurity and its role in international relations and international cooperation. And so we have uh, Ms. Jordan here. Can we call you Clara? Please. Okay. So I want to know if you could speak a little bit to your experiences and how did you get into this field in the first place and, you know, how did you come from, you know, yeah, my whole Eastern journey. Europe to uh, Washington, D.C. And, you know, tell us a little about yourself, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love to. So, uh, you know, one thing I, I'll just start with, one thing I love about this field is we all come at the issue from a different perspective. And I think it makes it so rich. So my background is, uh, so I, uh, I'm i from Slovakia. I, I grew up there. I went to, lo- to law school there. Mm-hmm. Um, but already in law school, I was very heavily focused on European and international law. So I started my career at NATO, where I worked uh, at the legal office at SHAPE headquarters, which is the military headquarters of kind of NATO, where I was doing uh, lots of international law and paralegal work. Mm-hmm. How life is, you know, there's something happening in your personal life and something happening in your professional life and kind of through things brought me to D.C. And uh, I did a wonderful fellowship at the American Society of International Law. And uh, so I was fortunate enough that um, Jason Healy, who used Mm -hmm. to be the director here, he's a big name in this space, he gave me an opportunity to come here to the Atlantic Council and work for him. And Jay was really formative in my career, and he still is a mentor to me because Jay really showed me all the facets of the issue and Mm. He has a very interesting way of thinking about it. And really, I worked at the council from 2013 to 2015, and it was a great experience because I could, you know, do my NATO international stuff, but I could get to work with the U.S. industry, and, like, I would figure out, like, oh, this is how the policy world is really happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I see my job here at the Atlantic Council as I I orchestrate. Mm -hmm. I I work with different people and different stakeholders, and it's like – just running this this little program where you're trying to spot what the issues are, but really identify who are the people, who are the right people for it. So for me, my job here at the council is to create a platform for different experts to really bring a community together to solve some of these issues. So it's really a different format. We do a lot of um, work with next generation we do a lot of work with technical community to bring it a little bit to um to washington dc um so I'm, I'm very fortunate to be back at the council it's a great it's a great platform for me personally i i uh, still uh, like to maintain my uh, subject matter expertise work on a lot of issues write a lot research a lot but again i see my job as creating a platform for mm-hmm. the community we're kind of curious um how are cybersecurity practices communicated globally and what kind of ideological ideological competition do these practices face? Like, is there one united global vision of what cybersecurity should look like? Thank you. Yeah, this is a, a very, very complex question. So let, let's start with the communication. So, I mean, the, there are several ways countries do communicate what they do in cybersecurity, right? You have the official government, um, government officials speaking about these issues, but a lot happens actually in international organizations like NATO. I know that's one of the organizations you want to talk about today. And, and really that exchange that happens, you know, in working groups, in different committees, in sharing their national strategies, that's how you communicate and even signal to other countries. So when it comes to 
ideological differences. I mean, they're really the, the biggest gap we have is uh, between, you know, China and Russia and kind of the, the West, mm-hmm. where for them, cybersecurity is about the security of the information, about really the control over information, what, what, which in their context means control over content. Mm. Whereas the other countries, United States, Europe, you know, and North America, they really, uh, for them, cybersecurity is about how you secure the internet so you have a safe infrastructure for your free commerce, for your free speech, and for your population. Do you feel that despite these sort of differences that some of these actors have, that there is a general sense of cooperation overall, or is it more like, is it a little bit more assertive against each other? Do you feel like there's a greater sense of like, this is something that we all need to work together towards? Yeah, absolutely. I think despite these differences, I think the interconnected nature of the world, you know, how, you know, we use each other's technology and network and infrastructure. And so people understand that we are vulnerable together and that it is in our common interest to find, uh, at least on a cyber safety issues, certain certain collaboration. I think that's what's interesting is that you have countries with, with which you can never talk about cybersecurity, like Russia and China, but you could probably find common areas of collaboration on the safety issues. So when you think about Internet of Things devices, right? I mean, we all use the devices that are made in China. It is in, it's in our common interest to have these devices secure. So it's more working on these technical issue, maybe security standards, where there is a collaboration. I mean, you do have international standards that are adopted globally because they really pertain to the very basic safety issues that you know underpin our lives. Right, so you mentioned this um, cooperation in cyberspace and how we're all kind of invested in it. Is that a united picture of the future? Like, is everyone in the realm of we should coordinate, we should cooperate as much as possible? Like, does Russia and China feel the same way? And, and who are these people, who are these nation states cooperating with? So, I mean, the the collaboration on cyber issues is always going to go along the lines of whatever your geopolitical or foreign Mm -hmm. policy interests are. So, I mean, Russia and China will, you know, they, for example, in the United Nations, they always kind of work together and collaborate together. Um, I mean, it's really hard to tell how they see, you know, collaboration with with the West. I mean, it's really hard to really understand their deep motivations. But, I mean, for them, it is really about protecting their own national interest. Mm -hmm. And so I think the collaboration is in the areas when they will say, you know, this is really in my national interest, in my economical interest, and find those those ways to work with with the rest of the world. Um, I think, you know, over the past couple of years, we actually seen more collaboration internationally because I think people understand that, you know, the, the common resilience is is in our interest, that we actually, even if, if we think about the physical, cyber-physical interconnection and interplay, that, I mean, if you have a cyber tech on your infrastructure, maybe you'll need a help from a different country or from a different mm. region to maybe fi- find a perpetrator, maybe to help you, you know, to build up your infrastructure. So there is more collaboration. It's just, I think, goes along the line, what is your kind of intelligence issues and military issues, and then what's more of the safety innovation side, Mm. if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Has there been, like, a push towards a sort of, like, rule book of, like, what is acceptable in in cyber conflict? 
is that is that something that's been sort of developed between nations? Has that come about at all? So uh, there's been a lot of discussions in the United Nations level about whether and how the international law applies to cyberspace. So that would be your typical cyber conflict. What is a, a right to war? You know, mm -hmm. what, how you can use force? And then what are the rules that apply once war or armed conflict breaks out? So there has been a general agreement that international law and the United Nations Charter does apply to cyberspace. Mm -hmm. However, where the issues really started, and even, you know, even China and Russia agree that the international law does apply to cyberspace. Where the issue really is, is how this applies to cyberspace. And right. so there is no state practice. It is really the state practice that... that um, kind of develops the law and tells other countries how do we understand the law. And so that's where you have the disagreements. Um, we have seen some positive steps. Um, I mean, there is you have the talent manual. You may have heard about it, which is a group uh, which comes out of a NATO body, a NATO mm -hmm. sponsor center of excellence, um, which basically uh, gather the group of uh, scholars and experts to try to take a stab at defining how uh, international law applies. So this is an academic, it's a mm -hmm. book of independent experts, mm. but it is international. I mean, you had scholars from China and Russia and other parts of the world. So that is a first important step in trying to define what the law is and how we see it. Um, however, you know, that's, that's a group of 20 people or 30 people. It's not the mm -hmm. international community. So what I think really needs to happen going forward is have more countries talk about how international law applies in cyberspace. So we just recently had the UK Attorney General mm -hmm. who, um, who for the first time st stood up on a stage and said, you know, this is how the UK interpret certain rules of international law. So we need more of the state practice because it is going to be through the state practice that we will understand how the law applies. So the hard rules are there. Mm -hmm. How do you protect civilians? What is a, you know, the use of force issues? But again, there are so many differences in the, applica in the practical application. So mm -hmm. you, you brought up Talon. Um, Talon. Um, <laughs> that, that's specifically reserved to like, physical damage caused by like, hacking, correct? So the, the law, the, the talent manual looks at two sets of rules. Um, one is how international law applies when you have a certain threshold of use of force. So that's one, you know, you had a, yeah. what is an armed attack, right. Right? Right. right? How much damage we think there ought to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a talent two, which looks at the lower uh, threshold. Mm -hmm. um, so under the threshold of use of force. So yeah, it, it the, the first, um, the first element you're really, really talks about how these different experts were defining what kind of harm you have to have uh, right. for this to be an armed attack. So then the international law can can kick in. Right. And so does that armed attack? It depends on who the targets are as well. Right. So mostly armed attack. Um, you know, looking at the definitions in the international law, it's really about the damage. Mm, I see. So it's not that much about the target. It's really what is the damage that's being caused. Right. And so in the past, you know, the when the UN Charter and all these agreements were kind of construed, we never really thought about, you know, that we could have, you know, we could have these kinetic effects brought on through mm -hmm. internet or connectivity, right? So for them, you know, armed really kind of, 
they thought about arms and tanks. This interpretation really changed after 9-11 mm-hmm. because 9-11, they said, you know, this was an armed attack, even if a plane was used as an arm. So the mm-hmm. international community really started to open up their horizons as to what armed attack means. But it really comes to the significant harm caused by cyber attack. And there is no agreement currently in the international community how much harm you have to. Does someone has right. to die? I mean, right now it's still um, kinetic effects in terms of huge uh, you know, kinetic damage, dead people. But people are starting to talk about, okay, if we crash the financial market, I was about to ask yeah. that question. Do you yeah, think right, that right. when we move, do you think that if it moves to simply a cyber attack, something that has almost like a physical like mm-hmm. consequence, but not quite? Do you think that there's a movement towards that being recognized in a future document? Yes, uh, maybe it's not. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think people are starting to understand that the what damage interconnectivity can cause. You know, if you don't have electricity for. 10 days, two weeks, Mm -hmm. a month. Is that damage? Is that damage? And then, again, now with technology being everywhere in the medical devices, in a power grid, I mean, really your kind of the potential for the physical harm for dead people to occur or, you know, large-scale destruction occur, it's much more likely. So I think countries are moving to that understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any new charter. I think really the the key is in that um, government representatives will have mm-hmm. to talk more and more about how they understand international law applying, what kind of damage, what is the damage to you as a country. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's not helped by just cyber becoming, the, the line between cyber and physical realm is, is, complete, is getting blurred Every day. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, it's getting blurred, but then it's no longer about ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really becoming about human life. It's really in our house, in our car, in our bodies, in our hospitals. And so that really, I mean, the, the attack surface is so huge that you actually have much more likelihood of physical damage. Mm-hmm occurring and then probably it's going to be easier to assess mm-hmm. whether something is an armed attack or not i mean when you talk about manipulating financial markets people can't really imagine how it would really how it would could really reach the threshold we need right. in international law well so what about uh, intentionality um as you've said the surface is so huge things can not always go as planned um if something is affected by another action and it's a domino effect is that still an attack is that still something that uh even though if it can cause damage is intentionality part of that international scope on how we look at cyber conflict and cyber attacks yeah i never i never thought about that in 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 that context so i mean at the end of the day from the international pure international perspective Mm -hmm. it's it's the damage that matters Right. right i think what really changed with interconnectivity and the fact that you know you can have a domino effect and there you can have a cascading effects of a mm-hmm. cyber attack what it really brings on to the international community is just that understanding that we have to do something about this mm-hmm. that because we're all connected that that you know we do something whether intentional or not right. it can still cause huge huge uh, impact and you don't even know that you can be impacted i mean this can happen you know in, on a different continent and still can have huge impact uh, in your country. Mm-hmm. So I think it is not going to change the law or the interpretation of the law. What it does change is just the desire of international community to talk about it because now you can actually envision a scenario of a cascading effect. 
So I had another question going back towards the idea of international cooperation. So for an organization like NATO, how exactly does like contribution to cybersecurity look like by member states? How do they kind of come to an agreement? Do they have a sort of framework that they all work together? And how do you kind of how do you work together towards protecting cybersecurity, honestly? Yeah, so NATO is a very, very uh, interesting organization because it's a political military organization, and its primary mandate is to defend its own networks. Mm-hmm. Now, this has changed over the years. The organization went from defending its network to now making sure it can carry, carry out its own uh, missions. So they're really moving out from uh, information assurance to mission assurance. So the way NATO contributes to cybersecurity is that, one, it, it's making sure that it has resources as an organization to protect its network, its equipment, the tanks, the communications, all that. From my perspective, however important this is, the biggest contribution of NATO to international security is in a capacity building, hmm. which for me is that you have, you know, all these member states sitting around the table and you have everyone from Slovakia to United States that mm-hmm. are on a, you know two sides kind of a spectrum in a maturity mm-hmm. and so these less mature countries can learn from more mature countries about how do you think about your national security strategy how do you think about the threat landscape how do you think about technology capabilities NATO allies they train together I mean there's so many cyber exercises that NATO is mm-hmm. organizing so, you know, there you can have countries on different spectrum um, kind of working together. And so really that capacity building contribution of NATO is one of the, I think, for me, it's the biggest contribution kind of to international security. The other interesting aspect that NATO kind of brings to the table is that it's an organization that can amplify other existing um, efforts in the international community. So, you know, NATO talks about the confidence-building measures. So you have OEC and other organizations around the world that do cyber confidence-building measures. So in lots of NATO's work, they would amplify these efforts that we want, NATO, we want the member states to work, you know, work uh, on these measures together. So again, that's a very interesting aspect of NATO. A lot of people say, you know, NATO should do more. And, but again, if you look at the basic mandate of the organization, the capacity building and then this amplification, I really think the added value is, is really is really huge. Mm, right. So what are these major uh, – you touched on some of the threats earlier and some of – you know, you mentioned the competing ideologies between, you know, kind of Russia and China versus the West. Um, what kind of emerging threats uh, does NATO face or these other kind of organizations face? And what kind of things do they do to mitigate these kind of threats? Mm-hmm. So really, the what what really changed from the threat perspective is, you know, I mean, y- you have the same actors like you had five, ten years ago. I mean, some of the nation states are now more bolder. You still are going to have the nation state actors, which although they cannot cause or you know they don't pause po- risk for the military operation. I mean, you can have DDoS attacks. You can embarrass mm-hmm. NATO. I mean, you right. can have all that. But if I really think about the nation states, really the biggest threat is on a cybersecurity side, it's the, the threat to the ability of NATO to conduct its operation. However, the biggest threat I think we've seen in the past years is all um, the propaganda and mm-hmm. all the disinformation coming from Russia that is really... Uh, attacking the internal cohesion of the alliance, right? right so right. you have all the propaganda, 
you have all these all this narrative you know against eu against nato and then you have also you know th- this th- this kind of creates a tension between member states because lots of what we've seen really was you know and, and there is a certain sense of well we don't know what to do against russia and there's competing interests within nato right i mean it's changed it's changed over time but couple of years ago i mean the southern member states worried more about terrorism and migration right. right and then the northern and i would say the baltic countries would you know worry more about russia it's changed now over mm-hmm. time they again mm-hmm. understand that it's all related all connected right right um but again i think the biggest threats are those that kind of are threat to the co- cohesion of the alliance and we see that we've seen that over the past year or two right mm-hmm. that Definitely. you had so much narrative around nato not only in the United States, but even in different European member states um, that start to question the importance of alliance. So you have a, you know, let's pick a a member state A where you have all this anti-immigration narrative that is fueled by um, this information and propaganda coming from Russia or even their domestic countries who use the same tools as as Mm. Russian propaganda. And so they start to question whether we should be in NATO, why should we contribute, why should we be in the EU? So again, really the biggest threat is to the cohesion. Right, right. And what they're doing about it, I mean, NATO is doing, again, an amazing job in thinking about how we protect our own networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last couple of years, uh, there's something called uh, Cyber Pledge uh, that's in, the, in place at NATO, which actually, uh, it's, a, it's a commitment that may b- member states have to give to NATO to actually shore up their cybersecurity, have a cybersecurity strategy. So there's already that. You know, there's this 2% defense spending uh, commitment from member states to NATO. And a lot of countries are spending more money on cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And then what they're also doing, you know, NATO has a, a, a fairly robust public diplomacy efforts where it works with the youth in different European countries and around the world and partner countries. There's lots of... Um, you know, lots of working actually on social media. Uh, NATO does a good work debunking the myths. However, I think the proactively showing the benefit of the organization rather than trying to mitigate something is more important. So I think that's where NATO should do some more is to talk about how does the organization Mm. contribute to peace and security. I mean, what does it mean for a regular person on the street that there is a NATO? I mean, what does that commitment to collective security mean? So, I mean, translating what being a NATO member means to you day to day is Mm -hmm. the key because then it's going to be much harder for any, you know, propaganda or you know information campaign to to sway you one or one way or the other yeah that's interesting especially how earlier we were talking about how the the competing visions of what the internet is used for absolutely and how the west uh, or at least with nato and you know the north america uh is about having a space in which you can communicate freely but how do you balance that between a force that is trying to use that free communication against that cohesion so how do you balance something like, well, we need to protect our ability to speak, but also maybe this freeness of speech is, is harming that ability to keep itself sustained? Yeah, uh, we had an event uh, last week and someone uh, said, actually, you know, Americans need to understand that you can't have your cake and eat it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that's the right way of saying it. But right. it's, a really, it's really talking about what is not acceptable. And so I think if you have a propaganda or any information on social media or any other outlet that let's say incites violence right Mm -hmm. um 
you know, in Europe is important. I mean, it's it's a crime, you know, um, anti-Holocaust speech in Europe mm-hmm. is crime. It's not crime in the United States. And so I think there is a larger societal conversation that we now have to have about what are the limits mm-hmm. of, I mean, wh- where do we draw a line? I mean, if there is a free speech that incites violence, that th- there is probably some line we should draw there, right? Again, I don't think society just has to, again, come to terms with the fact that the we used to have media. Now media are not really media, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain media outlets that are still media. We cannot call social media media. They are advertising companies. Right. right. For people to understand this and to know then that if I'm going to read something on Twitter or Facebook, maybe I should not believe it. And so it's, again, a conversation about what do we call media? What is the role of the media? How do you actually teach our population to think critically about it, mm-hmm. to, to, to be more, you know, to read more than 140 characters on Twitter? So I think um, there, there is now, I think, a, we see a beginning of societal conversation about where do you draw a line. But it's, those are very hard, you know, those are very hard interests to reconcile. Um, but I think for us to continue to live you know, in that free speech environment that we all have and cherish, it is important to think about what is the line? Is it a violence? Is it a deaf person? Is it, you know, um, you know, um, d- you know, di- different different ways of hate speech? What I- what is it that becomes unacceptable? So it kind of raises a question with Talon again, sort of the idea about it's causing harm to our confidence in our own systems, maybe even our confidence in NATO, confidence in our own, maybe even electoral systems in that sense. So is that something that is measured in terms of damage? That's another question that kind of gets answered. And what is an appropriate response in sci- in the field of cybersecurity towards propaganda? It's hard to say. I would I would agree with you on this. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. And I think there's two things we – I mean, the, the helpful framework for me is to think about, okay, what is the cybersecurity part? I mean, what do you have to do just to shore up your defenses, that your voting system is secure – what do you do to make sure that, you know, you just done your basic on cybersecurity? And then there is the other resilience, is the societal resilience, which I think does not get enough attention just mm-hmm. yet. And mm-hmm. so it is that work, just understanding that we get our information in a different way, we consume it in a different way, we are educated in a different way, uh, you know, recognize certain societal tensions, just see where they could be exploited. I mean, those are all the things that society has to do and and I think we're we're going there but we're still a long way long way away from many years of, of continuing conversations then. and it's interesting because people will tell you you know um, mo- mostly people in the intelligence community they'll tell you know five six seven years ago we saw this Twitter thing coming we saw it happening mm. but the country was so caught up in thinking about you know Chinese economic espionage mm. no one wanted to talk about Russia because we thought that we had a ch- we had a chance as an international community. We we had a chance to establish different relationships with this country. While that was happening on the on the political level, which is right, you would have lots of um, lots of analysts from the intelligence community saying, you know, there is actually something happening. We're not quite sure what yet what it is, but it was happening. And so, it's also finding a way. How do you reconcile? your again foreign policy goals with what is actually happening and how do you bring all the experts and all the stakeholders together to give you an informed you know so you can have an informed opinion where you are trying to take certain relationships with countries 
thank you so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, so I really enjoyed speaking with Clara. I don't know if you had a good time, but it's it's also great that together we can interview someone because so often it's just you and I feel very left out. That's true. It's, it's yeah. good for us both to be there for once. Exactly. It, t- it truly feels like a team effort. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, the things that we, we had in that conversation, a little expound on it a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk about the question of threats, like who are these the threats that are confronting NATO specifically? You know, Clara alluded to the fact that a big part of that are these state apparatus that is uh, being pushed by China and Russia to NATO member states, which is obvious. You know, big geopolitical rivals, you would expect something like that. Um, But unlike the history of NATO, which I've been reading up a little bit about, um, it's not like it's it's not existing in in a state of cold war like like NATO was formed in. And it's not existing during like periods of hot war where NATO is like actively engaged in proxy warfare with with china and russia it's not really happening in the same way that it used to and so uh, it's it's so interesting how the threat of cyber attacks and you know election meddling that some of these some of these organizations are are subject to um they're not exactly warfare it's almost like subterfuge or, or espionage or just i guess general interruption and annoyance right? right it's it's classification is kind of ignores our traditional views of, of what war would be, you know, when we're existing in this, as you've kind of already alluded to, this constant state of threat, you know. Right. And so because of that, as a as a military defense organization, it's really hard for NATO to respond in kind, like to have a proportional response. You know, is NATO going to interfere in Russian and Chinese elections? Are they going to interfere? Like, what if it's one person who is a rogue actor and they're trying to um, derail an election or derail anything with like a misinformation campaign. If it's a single person or a single group of people, are you can't inter- you can't <laughs> proportionally interrupt their personal elections. It doesn't doesn't really apply. You right. Know? It's it's really hard to say. I mean, even with the Talon document, it's not exactly clear. I mean, Talon kind of goes on to conclude that you know sort of cyber attacks that have a sort of physical damage. Mm-hmm. A good illustration of that, I think, would be the Stuxnet attack right. by the U.S. against Iran and its uh, uranium enrichment facilities. I mean, by the definitions kind of proposed by there, you could almost kind of view it as being a act of war in a sense. If you if you define cyber war as being attacks that cause like a physical like damage. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, in that case, did the U.S. wage war or cause a war like action against Iran? I don't know. I don't think the U.S. would probably want that to be how it's classified. So it's hard to say. I mean, deciding what's appropriate, especially in cyberspace, is really hard. At the moment, the U.S. has kind of concluded, it seems, that the appropriate response would be to actually use like soft power pressures you know as we've already seen with like sanctions and mm-hmm. evicting russian diplomats uh, out of the country or russian spies um, right right and in a response to chinese industrial espionage um you know president barack obama's administration like directly dealt with china in like a one-to-one um bilateral deal like hey look we'll give you some some trade uh tr- beneficial trade deals if you pull back on the you know industrial espionage and then a few months later, they act, the industrial espionage attacks di- dialed back a significant amount. So I think like there definitely is a case for for soft power and like direct communication. But the thing is with with cyber attacks is that there's a huge amount of like plausible deniability, mm-hmm. and uh, we've discussed attribution plenty of times. Like, well, who did it? How can you prove who did it? Is it 100% inconclusive that this person did it? Right. Um, that's something that we've seen time and time again with um, hackers based out of Russia. 
there's this, oh, well, they're not affiliated with the Russian state government. They're doing this on this own accord, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we're not going to stop them, you know? And so how do you deal directly with that kind of um, structure when it's, it's almost divorced from the political context that it's in, you know, they don't have a, they don't have the same stake as NATO does. Right. And it kind of goes back into the idea of threat. The barriers to entry into like a cyber threat is way less than Mm -hmm. classical states as we're, you know, thrown in already with non-state actors like terrorists. But even outside of that, in cybersecurity, you don't really need to, you know, you don't need to have like a military at all. You don't need to buy guns to wage a cyber attack. You can do it with a computer. Right, right. Like what can a million dollars get you? You know what I mean? Right. Like the Internet Research Agency had a, a budget of a few million dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and that caused, caused a whole bunch of discord and, and chaos, in the, at least in the American political system, you know. And like what what does one Tomahawk missile cost, you know? Multi-millions. Multi-millions. Yeah. And so like the, the cost for impact is, is way different than like kinetic warfare, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so speaking of kinetic warfare, we're going to transition to a bit of a game here, Jacob. Okay. Um, I know that you've taken a couple of legal classes. You're you're basically a scholar in in legal philosophy, and you you're just took your LSAT, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's just quantify that right there. <laughs> All right. Sure. So how how did the LSAT go? We'll find out soon enough. Okay. Cool. So that this will this will tune in. This is like your your pre LSAT. <laughs> your pre LSAT test. We'll see. So pulled up in front of me, I have the uh, Tallinn manual that we discussed with Clara. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm going to define some of the stuff that they define in their rules and ask you a question about yeah. the rules. So don't, don't pull it up on your computer. I'll ask you a question, and oh. you'll have to expound on it and give me like a true or false kind of situation. Does that make sense? I'll try. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so starting off, this first question has is in Section 3. It's Rule 32, and it's called Prohibition on Attacking Civilians. So for our listeners, again... This is the Talon Manual. It defines what is cyber warfare. It defines what is a cyber attack. Um, so I'm going to quiz Jacob here on some aspects of this very lengthy 215-page um, legal document. Sure. Okay, so Rule 32, Prohibition on Attacking Civilians. Quote, The civilian population as such, as well as individual civilians, shod- shall not be the object of cyber attack. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... To qualify as the object of an attack, the harm to the relevant person or object must meet the level set forth in Rule 30. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, in the case of a cyber operation intending to harm a particular individual by manipulating medical information stored in a hospital's database, mm-hmm. okay, who would be the object of attack? The database or the patient? Oh, that is such a hard question. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is going to be tough. Um, it's, so it's it's a it's for a specific person's record, correct? Yes. Then I would say it's the individual is the one technically being attacked. But I mean, from a cybersecurity perspective, yeah, it's, you're attacking the medical facility. Right. Yeah. So she would be the object of attack. Uh, it, it says she. She yeah. would be the object of the attack. But the database would not be if the damage thereto does not rise to the level required for an attack. Okay. So to put that in perspective, by contrast. Um, the case of a cyber attack against the SCADA system of a chemical plant that is designed to cause an explosion, that explosion, which is intended to result in the release of toxic substances that will hurt people around the facility, the chemical plant and the population are both objects of the attack because there is a a requisite level of harm to reach each of them. Whereas if you just access the database, the hospital isn't necessarily harmed, but the patient is. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, it's interesting. There's sort of like a threshold to see if it's like an attack. You know, a singular person getting attacked, the threshold is very low to determine if it was targeting a person. But if it's targeting like a larger system as a whole, like one particular entity, it doesn't quantify as an attack. That's an interesting sort of uh, distinction there. All right, doing great so far. Okay, so next is the same section. Uh, This is Rule 38, Mm -hmm. uh, Civilian Objects and Military Objectives. Okay. Okay, so... Um, Rule 38 states, civilian objects are all objects that are not military objects. <laughs> so it's a great, great subset A yeah. and set sure. B. Um, military objectives are those objects which, by their nature, mm-hmm. location, purpose, or use, make an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstance ruling at the time offers a definite military advantage. Okay? Sure. So, definite military advantage. So, we have a civilian factory, mm-hmm. okay? The civilian factory produces computer parts. Computer parts that can be used both for civilian use and for military use. Does that comply with the rule? Is that a civilian factory or is that a military factory? I don't even know if that's even possible to answer. I would argue it's critical infrastructure to some extent. So, I guess you could... I think you could go either way on this, and I think if a country wanted to, they would classify it as a military target. Yeah, so all experts agreed that a factory that produces computer hardware or software under contract to the enemy's armed forces, so you can have multiple contracts, but sure. if one of those contracts is to military forces, it, it, it is classified as a military target. So it's so interesting how even if a small slice of your total output is military, if you contribute to military at all, it's still open to be a cyber target under the Tallinn Manual. Sony was classified as critical infrastructure when it was hacked. I don't know if that's something you're aware of. It's not something you generally think of. You might think of, like, airports or dams or something like that as being, like, critical infrastructure. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Sony's hack by the North Koreans was technically classified as an attack against critical infrastructure of the United States. Right, right. And uh, continuing, although – this is a quote. Although all the experts agreed that the issue of whether such a factory qualifies as a military objective, um, it depends on the scale, scope, and importance – of the military acquisitions. And so they were able to arrive at the, the definitive conclusion, conclusion as to, like, precise thresholds. So, like, even then, they're like, well, it depends. And, you know, it really matters on how you rationalize it, I guess, after the attack. You know? Okay. Okay, okay so, last one. Uh, rule 41. Okay? It is definitions of means and methods of warfare. Okay, so, it, this is where it defines warfare. Okay, so... I quote, for the purposes of this manual, means of cyber warfare are cyber weapons and their associated cyber systems and methods of cyber warfare are the cyber tactics, techniques, and procedures by which hostilities are conducted. So means is the systems and methods are the techniques and tactics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, consider an operation using a botnet to conduct a distributed denial of service attack. Which one is the means and which one is the method? Jeez, these are like the worst questions. These are like impossible. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, I would say the means in this particular instance are every individual computer of the botnet, but the method is the idea of how the botnet is itself controlled, I would say. Mm-hmm. That, w- that would be my argument. Okay, so in this example, the botnet is the means of cyber warfare, okay? While the distributed denial of service attack... The DDoS that came from it right, right. is the method. So okay. I think you got that right. I think that would be a fair yeah, to it, say. We're right. just swimming through legalese here. Yeah. And so I, I think the reason I'm doing this, Jacob, is to really nail home the point that, like, 
Computers are complicated. Oh, yeah, certainly. This, this is All of these questions are so gray. Yeah, yeah. Computers are complicated, and the law, the institution of law, mm. is very black and white. And so you're crossing just the grayest of grays to, with, you know, very, very precise and, like, cut-or-dry definitions. Right. And so even in the Talon Manual, which, like, this isn't, Binding like or anything, binding yeah. law. This is just people trying to come up with something that it, it can work. Mm-hmm. Or like, even then, we don't even know. Sometimes it mm-hmm. depends. You know, it's very up to the, the. It's very subjective. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, it's it's just you know, and you're dealing with very sensitive subject matters. You know, like warfare. So you definitely want to have some concrete definitions. So going forward, we hope to approach more of these difficult definitions in the next episode of Decrypted. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCore program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.